This is an ABC podcast. When you strain a muscle, you put an ice pack on it, yeah? Top athletes, footy players and the like, they plunge into ice baths to help their bodies recover after training and competing. Well, if cold is good, is colder better? What about putting yourself inside a cryotherapy chamber where it can get down to minus 140 degrees Celsius? Hi, I'm Amanda Smith and this is Sporty. All right, I'm about to do something that feels a bit scary to me. It sometimes does create a little bit of anxiety, but... I'm terrified. Amanda, it's either going to be the shortest three minutes of your day or the longest, so we shall see. <laughs> Lou, you're my instructor, my guide. Tell me what is whole body cryotherapy? So whole body cryotherapy is the use of extremely cold temperatures as a non-invasive therapy to elicit a positive stress on the body. A lot of clients seek cryotherapy for recovery, so to, to keep them moving throughout their activities. And we have professional athletes who visit us, but we've also got pretty incredible weekend warriors who also come to visit for their recovery and performance all right, so how do you get, how do you make it so cold and how cold is it going to be? Uh-huh. Our tank that you can see here is filled with liquid nitrogen and that's filtered through to the back of our futuristic looking chamber here. So it's a, it's a big cylinder that I'm going to get inside of, yeah? <laughs> you are, you are. It does look a little bit like a time machine. Um, so the liquid nitrogen is fed through the back of the machine and an ultra cold mist is created by the machine. So we'll be getting you down to temperatures today of between minus 130 and minus 140. Celsius. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, is, is it safe? Absolutely, it is safe. The sessions or the therapy is very short. It's a maximum of three minutes per session. And the reason that the session is kept so short is because any longer than that, and it can tip over to being potentially damaging. So things like cold burn and frostbite can occur. Right, but I'm hoping that I'm not gonna come out with frostbite or not cold burn. at all, not at all, Amanda. We're going to keep you super safe with some Ugg boots and some gloves, so it is the height of fashion. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just in my undies. Before that, though, I want to find out what it's like from someone else, the guy who's done the session before me. Yeah, my name's Scott Ward. And do you come here often, Scott? Yeah, generally come in twice a week. What started you off coming to cryotherapy? Yeah, well, uh, I travel a lot for work, and you know, I was getting a bit sick and dealing with jet lag and things like that. So you've just, you've just done a session. How are you feeling? I'm feeling cold, but I'm slowly starting to warm up and pretty energised. Normally I feel like I've got a lot of energy after I do the session. And yeah, that generally lasts for me maybe three or four hours. So, you know, it's good if I can whip in on a lunchtime or something like that. And then I'm sort of good to go for the rest of the afternoon. And do you have any injuries, exercise or sports related injuries that you're dealing with as well? 
Yeah, I have had a sore back and, and something in my foot. Kind from of. what? The back was actually from exercising in the gym and the foot was from running. So it's a bit of a trapped nerve, which I had tried a few things um, as well around that. So I've been coming for about five weeks. So I just feel like that's starting to make a bit of a difference as well. So, um, you know, that was one of the three reasons for me, which was recovery from travel and boosting my immune system and getting over some of those niggling injuries as well. Do you remember the first time you did it and what it felt like? Yeah, the you know what, the first time for me wasn't as cold as the second time. And I think that's probably because on the first time I had so much adrenaline running through my system, right? So, you know, the three minutes was just kind of up straight away. And it was the second time I came in that I was actually really cold. So, you know, I actually do a little bit of focused breathing um, before I go in. And I find if I'm a bit more relaxed and focused breathing, then the three minutes just flies by. Well, as a first-timer, I'm hoping adrenaline will get me through this. So I'm going to be standing on that box there, looking at you with your head and neck out of the machine, and I'll be talking you through it. Having said that, we do have a lot of clients who also like to close down their eyes and focus on breathing and almost meditate their way through the session. So if that is something that you feel comfortable with, we can go with that too. Let's freeze you, Amanda. (laughs) So that's just the sound of the machine cooling down. Now, one last thing before I get you into the machine is that the nitrogen mist is non-toxic, but it doesn't contain any oxygen. So it's important just to keep your chin tilted up just a little bit. And at a couple of points throughout the session, I'm going to get you to lift your hands just above your head to expose your armpits Mm -hmm. to the cold. Doing that exposes the lymph nodes that you have underneath your armpits to the cold, which is really good for helping to reduce any general body inflammation that you might have. I'm going to open the door. Okay, here we go. Oh, this is terrifying. <laughs> oh, okay. Big deep breath. It's okay. Okay. So what's this um, digital display up the top of the, the cylinder for, Lou? That's the temperature gauge. Oh, okay. So, so at the moment it's a very nice 18 degrees. <laughs> so it's pretty balmy in there right now, isn't it? Yeah. Pressing start for three minutes. But remember that if at any time you'd like to stop, you can. Okay. What if I'm... Oh! You're on, you're freezing. Most people feel quite comfortable until it hits between minus 80 and minus 100. That's usually where people think, oh, this is a little cold. I'm already feeling it, finding it cold. (laughs) Minus 32, that's nothing, okay. (laughs) So I'll get you to lift your hands up above your head and do a complete 360 turn in the machine, shuffling around pretty tight in there and arms back down for me (laughs) what is it minus 103 at least my um hands and feet are fine because they've got mittens and ugg boots on whoa it is now getting getting really cold minus 124 (laughs) 
Spin, you've got 30 seconds to go. And have a look how cold it is. Minus 133. Shiver away if you need. I'm actually trying not to tense against it. You're but, doing um, really well. You've now got 10 seconds to go. So shivering is really good. It's a good metabolism boost. Okay. You did it. <laughs> oh, gosh, you feel the ice tingly. Went. Um, your legs will probably be feeling a bit chilly. Freezing. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Now, yep. post that session, all your blood that rushed to your core to effectively keep you alive, to protect your vital organs, because that's what happens when you're exposed to extreme cold. That blood that has been oxygenated and boosted with all those hormones, is now rushing back out to your periphery. Yeah, it feels tingly and great. You'll, you'll be feeling quite energised post this. Thank you, Lou. Well done, <laughs> Amanda. Thank you. And truly, it wasn't as unbearable as I thought it would be, with thanks to Lou Cork. But would I do it again? Not sure. James Broach is a sport and exercise scientist and he studied the effects of whole body cryotherapy as well as ice baths. But James, with the cryotherapy, well, first of all, it brings to my mind cryonics, you know, where you get your body deep frozen after you die um, in the hope that in the future you'll be able to be revived. Is that where cryotherapy, the cryotherapy chamber started? Yeah, the way the cryotherapy chamber started was actually for more pathological chronic illnesses, so something like rheumatic arthritis or fibromyalgia, typically where we're looking at reducing that chronic inflammation. Well, it's now often used by sports people, tennis players like Rafa Nadal, uh, Stan Wawrinka, footy players too. As a sport and exercise scientist, James, tell me how cryotherapy works, its apparent benefits. I guess that the main benefit from an athletic setting is that we get this response picked up in our skin. Okay, we're in a really cold environment. What happens here is we send some sensory information back to the brain. The brain's saying, hang on, it's pretty cold here. We need to preserve some heat. We need to prevent a hypothermic response. And what happens here is that the brain causes the blood vessels in our periphery to constrict or narrow. So we basically get rid of a lot of heat from our blood, the delivery of the blood to the skin. So that's kind of why you see when you're quite hot when you're exercising, you can get quite red. That's kind of getting rid of some of that heat. So on the flip side, in the cold environment, we're trying to preserve that heat. Um, and in an athletic setting, the benefit from a reduction in blood flow to the periphery is that we're reducing this kind of muscle damage and, and inflammatory response that occurs after exercise. So by reducing the blood flow there, we're kind of nipping it in the butt, preventing that inflammation from occurring. Well, tell me about the cryotherapy study that you did at the French Institute of Sport with cyclists. Yeah, so it was with well-trained cyclists and triathletes. What we did is look at the long-term effects of cryotherapy. So there's a fair bit of research showing some positive benefits after a single session. But what we're particularly interested in is how that might affect muscle function and exercise performance in the long term. So we looked at these well-trained cyclists and triathletes four weeks of an intensified training block. And were they in the chamber like I was in from the neck down or were they in one of those whole rooms that's yeah. another way you can do the cryotherapy? It was a whole body cryotherapy chamber. Basically, it's like a, a big fridge which gets the whole chamber down to a really cold temperature. 
They actually had three chambers, so the first one was minus 10 degrees just to kind of get them warmed up or cooled down. Then they quickly transferred into a minus 60 degrees chamber and then to a minus 110. I got down to minus 133. (laughs) But what are the long-term benefits you found? Pretty minimal from what we found in that French study. And so we saw no change on that training responses. So how fit they were, how well they performed on a bike time trial after the four weeks with the people who were in the cryotherapy chamber. So you had a control group that had the same results as the cryotherapy group. Correct. Right, right. It's interesting. I mean, my experience of the cryotherapy, and it was, you know, a one-off, is that I felt very zingy afterwards, but that could have been because I wasn't freezing anymore. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So there's also an analgesic response or a pain relief response with cold. So as you can imagine, similar to when you apply ice to an injured area of the body, uh, we actually see the nervous system slow down and we see that pain response that's being sent back to the brain actually reduces and that's probably the main reason why you're getting that euphoric feeling after a cryotherapy session. You get this reduced pain sensation and, and improved pain tolerance. So that's psychological rather than physiological? Probably a little bit of both, yes. Mm-hmm. There's, there's definitely some physiological and psychological components to pain. Yeah, so you've, for an, an athletic setting, you, you've got these kind of micro tears and, and muscle soreness, which you're probably aware after a, a really heavy exercise bout, you're quite sore for a few days later. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a, a physiological component to that, but definitely a strong psychological component as well, because at the end of the day, pain is relatively subjective. Will you also study the effects of cold water immersion, James? Ice baths are popular with footy players post-match. How much less cold is an ice bath compared to cryotherapy? Much less cold. So a, a typical ice bath immersion would be in the vicinity of minus 10 to 15 degrees and we immerse athletes or participants in this research for maximum 15 minutes. So, yeah, you've obviously got a much longer duration in cold water than you do in the cryotherapy chamber, but at much less cool temperatures. And the reason being is that water can actually transfer the heat much faster and much more efficiently than the air can. Well, I have to say that because the the cryotherapy is dry cold uh, and the cold builds up or well or down, the temperature drops, you don't step straight into, you know, minus 130 degrees. It seemed to me more bearable than the wet cold of an ice bath, actually. But, But what happens to your muscles when you plunge into icy water? Similar to what I was just mentioning before about the reduction in blood flow. So the muscles, obviously the main tissue that's working during exercise. So after this exercise bout, we get a bit of muscle damage. We get a bit of swelling, a bit of soreness, a bit of inflammation that occurs with that. So if we're reducing the blood flow to that area, we're actually reducing how much that muscle starts to swell, how inflamed it gets, and ultimately how sore you get afterwards. And then also that pain relief response as well. So the same thing. Yeah, yeah, same mechanisms. And in an ice bath as well, you do get some kind of effect from the pressure of the water. So you get that feeling of buoyancy and weightlessness in water, which again would contribute to that euphoric or positive psychological feelings. Although in a study that you did, James, you found that, well, you found that using an ice bath was effective uh, in recovery after vigorous exercise, but so was another kind of bath that your participants were led to believe was just as effective. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that was a study that we ran at Victoria University. We had participants perform high-intensity bout on the bike, cycling, high-intensity interval exercise session, 
10 of the participants got a cold water immersion bath after the exercise session. Another 10 got a warm bath or a thermoneutral bath. And the last group had a warm bath, but it was a placebo condition. We basically put what we told them was a recovery oil, but it was actually just cetaphil soap into the bath. And what we did, it was a placebo by deception. So we told people that, okay, this is going to have the same effect as cold water. And we showed them some false evidence that this was going to benefit in the same way. And we actually right, so, saw- so they, were in a, they were in a warm bath with just a bit of soap in it that you'd pretended to them was some special thing that was going to be as effective as the ones who got into the ice bath. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we did actually see that the participants in the placebo group performed really similar to the participants in the cold water group. Uh, and both of them were superior to the thermoneutral control. So that is really telling me that it's mind over matter. There's definitely a psychological component as the results indicate from this study, but it wouldn't count out any physiological component either. What we found is that the placebo was as effective as cold water. So whether there is a physiological component, psychological component, or a combination of both, and I'll lean towards the latter, uh, there's definitely yeah, a bit of mind over matter for sure. And Dr James Broach has done studies into both cold water immersion and cryotherapy for sports recovery. He's a research fellow with the Institute for Health and Sport at Victoria University and the Australian Institute of Sport. And James, great to have you join us on Sporty. Great. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having me. So it seems that a lovely warm bath, as long as I can convince myself there's some special healing oil in it, will save me from needing an ice bath or cryotherapy. I'm Amanda Smith, and now here on Sporty, what prompts a child or teenager to want to be physically active, to want to play sport? Well, being good at it helps for a start, but what makes some kids physically capable and others not so much? Are you born with it, or can you make a sporty kid? Is it something to do with a child's earliest years? Associate Professor Lisa Barnett is from the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University. Now, to what extent is your later involvement in physical activity influenced by the the physical skills you may have been encouraged to develop in infancy and early childhood? Yeah, well, there's certainly a lot that can be done to help develop motor skills. So when we're talking about talent, there are certainly some children that will have more talent than other children, and some of us become sports stars and some of us don't. That's certainly true. But we can all do a lot to develop motor skills to a level where children can be able to join in playground games, be able to play a sport of their choice, and feel like they can participate. So there's no reason why that level of skill can't be developed in most children, unless they've got some particular disability. So um, what, what are, what are the, the motor skills we're talking about? The study that we were looking at ended up when kids were age five. And at age five, the sort of motor skills we're talking about are catching, throwing, running, jumping, skipping, galloping, and just at that basic level of being able to participate. And they're the sort of precursors to what you might call more specialised movement and sports skills. Exactly. So the idea being that if you can do a basic throw, perhaps when you're older and you want to do specific sports, that might turn into a javelin 
javelin or a lacrosse pass or some of these other actions that need that basic throwing movement before you can move on to those sport-specific skills. So currently, are we seeing significant numbers of children at primary school who aren't good at the things you talked about, running, jumping, skipping, throwing, catching? Yes, it's it's always surprising to me. So I do a lot of field testing in schools and these sort of skills we really, children should be mastering them in primary school and we shouldn't really be having children leaving primary school and starting secondary school without these skills and yet we do. So when we assess them, we assess them live and we observe them doing the skills and around 50% of kids haven't reached mastery in a number of those skills, um, particularly girls for some of the ball skills, but also boys for various skills. Half, half of Australian yes, primary school yes. kids. What This is by the time they finish. Grade pri- six, yeah. yeah. So um, it's, it's hard for people to believe, but when you're out there and you're watching kids do these skills, sometimes the skills are so poorly performed that it can look as though there may be a disability, but often it's just that children haven't had the movement experience. So we don't just wake up and naturally have these skills. We need to be engaged in lots of movement. And it's not just organised sport. We, we need lots of just backyard play, going down to the park, playing with friends. So all of that incidental play and activity helps as well that kids need to be able to develop their skills. Well, as you said, you tracked a cohort of children, a large cohort of children to age five, from birth to age five, and assessed their developing uh, motor skills. What sorts of then toys and activities work best over those five years? Yeah, so I'll just give you a little bit of a background to the study first. This is the infant study from Deakin University and actually mothers were recruited in mothers' groups when they were pregnant. And then the children were tracked and we had mothers' report of behaviours and things that were happening in the home when the child was um, four months old, nine months old, 19 months old, so around toddler age and then three and a half preschool age. And at those time points, all sorts of behaviours were recorded from the perspective of the mother. So things like how many toys you had in the home that were suitable for physical activity, how often kids played with the toys, uh, parent beliefs and behaviours and um, uh, the environment. So this was tracked at each different time point. And then we looked at those time points to see what related to their subsequent motor skill. One of the stronger findings that we found was in relation to toys or equipment suitable for physical activity. And that came up as relevant at a number of the time points. As so being, what are we talking about? What sorts of toys? Well, this can really be anything that could be suitable for physical activity. And it will differ according to the age. So for um, a preschooler, that might be a bike or, you know, small small trampoline or bats and balls. When you're talking about a nine-month-old baby, you're talking about, um, again, a ball that you could roll, perhaps a play gym, you know, things that they can reach out and grasp. So different time points, different types of toys, but it was just defined to parents as anything that could help physical activity. Is it also just about how much time toddlers or even infants are spending outdoors? Yeah, so that was another interesting finding. So at 19 months old, um, kids that had more time being unrestrained, that contributed to better motor skill later on. It was another interesting one at nine months old, more time outside. And you think, well, what can a nine-month-old be doing outside that might make a difference? Um, This could just be reflective of parents that generally let their child have more time exploring as well. 
But we have found with older kids that time outside does make a difference. So that one is one of the big messages that you can do. Just let your child have more time outside playing because they will generally be more active than inside. And be developing some of those motor skills just by mucking around playing. Exactly. And that's a lot of what we've lost in the in the last few decades. Just the, the play is really important and nature play is really important. And the ability for kids to try out different things and risk take and how how can I jump from this height? Can I jump from this height? What happens when I do this? What happens when I move a stick around and jump from there? So it's that playing and testing with uh, groups of children that we really need to bring back. And actually, that was another one of our findings, time with older children made a difference. So this is having older siblings? Could be having older siblings, but it was just specified as time playing with older children. So we don't all have siblings, but um, this is an opportunity to have your children in preschool or kinder or playgroup or just meeting with other parents and letting them play with older kids. And why is that? What's the What's the effect? Well, we think it's role modelling behaviour. It's um, children, older children playing games that the younger children may not have thought of or tried out yet and then they want to try and imitate. So they're being pushed a bit. They'll extend themselves and want to join in and and, and be pushed a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So your argument is that if a child starts school with good motor skills, they'll be more likely to take to and enjoy physical activity as children, also as teenagers and into adulthoods? Can you hypothesise? I don't actually need to hypothesise. So way back 10 years ago, my PhD actually looked at the relationship between kids' skills in primary school and then six years later, their physical activity, their fitness in adolescence. And the kids that were more skilled in primary school were fitter and more active in adolescence. And since then, there's been a number of studies and also looked at in relation to weight status as well. So it does make a difference. Uh, It's not the only thing that you need to be active. Certainly, That's another um, big push lately in Australia is the whole idea of physical literacy. So skills is just one component of your physical literacy. You also need motivation. You need confidence. uh, You need resilience. You need teamwork. But doesn't... doesn't uh, having the skill give you the confidence? It's definitely related. So having skill helps you improve your physical self-perception. But what we've also found, with even with young children, is young children who have a high physical self-perception but don't have skill are also more active. Oh, right, so, even if they've got an inflated sense of their exactly, skills. Right. Exactly. So, And it's quite normal for a young child to have an inflated sense and it helps them be motivated and want to engage. And that's actually what we want. So they can work independently. You can feel you're good and want to engage and not really be very skilled. And you can be skilled as well. And that can be an independent um, contributor to physical activity. Mm. All right. So tell me more if uh, as the parent of a baby or toddler, what you can do to, to boost your child's motor skills right from infancy. I think it's just making sure and having that headspace that can you think of as many opportunities throughout the day for your child to be active and unrestrained. And I'm a mother myself. I know it's challenging. We, you know, drive them to childcare and we need to. We want to get active ourselves and put them in the pram and that's great. Absolutely commend that. So there's lots of times when we might have to restrain our children and that makes sense. That's what we need to do. Uh, but we also need to think, well, when can they be unrestrained? So if I'm jogging with them to get my exercise, can I then make sure that they have opportunity outside the pram to move around as much as possible? 
people and to have as many different diverse experiences. So with toys and different terrain, outside, inside, because that's going to encourage their motor development in the best way possible. What about if I'm uh, a parent who's not all that physical myself? Yeah, so this is um, this is a challenge. I guess it's about thinking, well, if I can't impart that, what can I do? Can I involve others in my children's life to help that? Does my partner have that? And a lot of it's you don't necessarily need to be good at skills. It's about you engaging with your children. Can you just get out there and kick a ball around the backyard? You don't have to be perfect at it, but you're still getting your child out there and involved and you might have fun doing it. And Associate Professor Lisa Barnett is from the Institute for Physical Activity at Deakin University. The study into predicting the development of the motor skills that children need to be physically active is published in the International Journal of Behavioural Nutrition and Physical Activity. And Lisa, it's good to talk to you here on Sporty. Thank you. Thanks very much. Rosa Ellen is the producer of Sporty here on Radio National as well as on the ABC Listen app and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.